Okay, so this morning we come to the passage in Romans that perhaps uh, many of you were thinking, when are we going to get to that passage? Either because you will want to disagree with what it says or because you will affirm the way that it's going to be exposited. So we've come to this glorious passage of Scripture, which is Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. If you are able to stand, please rise for the reading of God's word. The infallible word of God reads as follows. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Specifically, Lord, thank you for revealing to us your sovereignty. For not only do you work all things for our good, for the good of your children, but you have decreed that we be your children for otherwise we would have been lost. In that humility, Lord, let us come to you this morning, knowing that if it were not for your power, if it were not for your Holy Spirit drawing us, we would be lost. Yes. We ask, Lord, for an understanding of these truths as we look at our text this morning. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, you may have a seat. I've titled today's sermon... God's Sovereignty in Display, Part 1, which we will continue next time. God's Sovereignty in Display. Now, what is sovereignty? We often use this in our theological discussions. Sovereignty means the absolute power and authority, complete jurisdiction over a domain. In this case... God has absolute rule and authority and reign and power over, over his jurisdiction. What is God's jurisdiction? Everything. Everything you can imagine. All creation is under the jurisdiction of God, of God Almighty. Now, as humans, we have attempted to be sovereign. Within our self-stubborn thinking, we at times insist that we are self-sufficient. A common attempt of men's felt sovereignty is often seen with the acquisition of power in any governing system, whether it is our own autonomous life that we try to be sovereign over our own lives, or ruling over our household in a way that is ungodly. And that may extend all the way to our place of work or whatever, if, if we are a, a owner of a business, and up to the point of wanting to be sovereign as a community, as a nation, which there is good aspects to that. There absolutely are. In one sense, it is good to know that we are to be always able to work hard and to explore ways in which we can create good things for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, and to not be dependent on other means, right? But to be resilient. So in that sense, yes, it's good. However, in an ultimate sense, the sovereignty 
of humanity quickly lets us down when we realize how weak we are and how corrupt human sovereignty can be. Not only in our self-autonomy, but also in the sovereignty of ruling authorities. It is then when we realize that human sovereignty is flawed. And we realize that we not only need each other, not only do we need specifically for us Christians, our church family, but ultimately we need God. We were not made to be independent creatures in an ultimate sense. So then, whereas humanly speaking, we have failed to be sovereign because we were not designed to be ultimately sovereign, God is the ultimate and the only one who exercises his sovereignty perfectly. Last week, as we saw the passage on how God intercedes for his people and he ensures that everything works for good for those who love him. We saw how that works and that is possible because God is in control of everything. That is everything that is ongoing in our everyday lives. He's able to work everything for good. Now, something to be made, be made clear there is that God is in absolute control of everything in his jurisdiction. That is, including you and me. Everything that exists, the entirety of creation. And if God is not in absolute control, he is not God. Okay? If God is dependent upon a created being, namely us or even creation itself, if God is dependent on what creation will do or a creature will do, he is not sovereign. So with that brief introduction, then we come to today's passage. Acknowledging that God is in control of all things, it follows that God is in control even of the salvation of people. Now, some may say this is a controversial, uh, controversial topic. And I would say maybe, but it's especially controversial to those that want to stretch the text to say something that it is not saying. Now, let me say this. There are things in Scripture that are difficult to understand. Absolutely. The Apostle Peter said that himself. What did he say? That Paul said or wrote some things that are hard to understand. So are there things in Scripture that are difficult to understand? You bet. Now it is, like I often say in my not-so-humble opinion, I don't think this passage is one of those passages. This passage is relatively straightforward. And we become challenged in what the text says because we might, ha we might have a preconceived notion of the role that God plays in salvation. It becomes difficult when we fight against the teaching that God is absolute, king, ruler, sovereign over everything that exists, including the salvation of people. If God was not in charge of salvation of people, nobody would be saved. That is my premise. If God was not in charge of saving people, nobody would be saved. I have a quote here by Sinclair Ferguson, 
who describes a snippet of the gospel in this way. He says, the gospel is not about something we do. It is about what God has done for us in Christ. Okay? Meaning, if the gospel, if salvation came to us by us doing something, we have it all wrong. So then, what is Paul's main point which, which we will extract from the passage today, which we have two parts to it, but nevertheless the first part, is this, that God foreknew and predestined those who are His. Meaning, those who would be saved. In even more plain terms, let me say it this way, anyone who is a Christian is a Christian only and only because God ordained it to be so. In the book of Romans, Paul has been teaching in a manner that has explained the depravity of man, that all have gone astray. He said the Jewish people stray, telling them, you think that you have a special place because of your bloodline? Paul said, wrong. He said, what about you Gentiles? Right? Not only that the Gentiles perhaps had been seen of those put to the side without any hope. But then we saw the argument, well, what about those that haven't heard? Or those that are not part of the chosen people of Israel? Paul taught us that you are equally lost. So now everybody's in the same boat. All have sinned, fallen astray. There's not one righteous, no, not one. That is because of the inability of man to come to God. And again, if we are to come to God and be saved from our sins, it is only because God has ordained it to be so to his people, which scripture refers to his people as the elect. Okay, that's plain teaching of scripture. So I challenge you today, if the doctrines of grace, if the teachings of the sovereignty of God is something that you struggle with, I have no hidden agenda. I will, straight you, I will tell you straight up, I will tell you plainly. I wish to persuade you of the sovereignty of God and salvation as we go through Romans and specifically in this text. A key doctrine that we're going to see today has been known by theologians as monergism. That is, that salvation is a work of God alone. God predestines, God saves. No man will be able to credit his or her salvation to something they contributed, something they did. Not possible. The opposite to monergism or the competing doctrine would be synergism, meaning, okay, I, yeah, I realize I need God. Let me, uh, let me meet him halfway. Let me do something so that God will accept me. My friends, that is unbiblical. There is zero merit in true salvation. Now, let me say this. Could somebody be saved and believed that they contributed to their salvation? I think so. Yes. However, they are in error. And they're saved in spite of their 
erroneous thinking, not because of it. Okay? So let the words I'm speaking be backed up with Scripture. A passage that summarizes the state of men and how God reached them is found in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. It reads as follows. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Okay? So in that brief passage, although there are more, and as you start to see this doctrines of grace in the way that God operates with his people, it is all over scripture, but this summarizes it very, very well. We are dead, trespasses and sins, and sins, children of wrath, not wanting to do nothing with God. God, on the other hand, being holy, being righteous, shows us mercy, something we don't deserve. Instead of giving us condemnation, which is what we deserve, he made us alive together with Christ, and he did that because he shows us grace. I make it a habit every time we are coming to service of playing the catechism for my kids. And little Zeke today was reciting what grace means. Is God's undeserved kindness. In the way the catechism puts it for kids. God's grace, God's mercy. So then let us proceed to our text. First we're going to see what is God's foreknowledge. What does the scripture mean when it talks about God's foreknowledge? First portion of our text says... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, we're going to look at that term, foreknew. Before that, let us just make sure we know what this is talking about. When it says those that he foreknew, those, in this pattern that Paul has been following, specifically in Romans 8, he had been describing those who belong to God, those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, those for whom the Holy Spirit intercedes, those that are strengthened by God, and in other words, and specifically in verse 24, he says outright, those who are saved. Those, that word those, that's who he's referring to. He's referring to Christians, okay? So, okay, what about those? He says, those whom he foreknew. God foreknew them. The term for know in the scripture, in the Greek, gnosko, it means simply to know someone. The term foreknew, prognosco, it means to know beforehand. In the sense that it is used in this passage, it is the following. Quote, to befriend or to be acquainted with in a familiar way ahead of time or before meeting. To select in advance, unquote. That's from one of the Bible dictionaries. So those who were Christians then were foreknown by God. As Ephesians 1 states, I don't have it here in the notes, but 
Ephesians chapter 1, in the beginning verses, it tells us that before the foundations of the earth, again, in plain terms, before time began, before we could even imagine what that means, before we ever existed and creation was ever built, God foreknew, God preordained that some people would be saved. Now this, in one sense, is very humbling, which reminds us, again, that man has nothing to do with his salvation. For God preordained it before we were even in existence, before creation was ever executed. And secondly, that there's nothing that a person can influence a person cannot influence God in order to be chosen. One way we can relate to this, especially for those that have small kids or those that have children in the womb right now, did those kids have a say in coming? How foolish would it be if little Helena comes out and says, oh, thank you, I actually chose to be here. No. How much more for the spiritual birth. Romans also talks about the adoption as children. Can an orphan pick his or her parents? No. And that is related to how God chooses his children. Now, let me comment on this. One of the most common errors in interpreting this scripture or the concept that God preordains that God predestines that God foreknows is the following some will say okay we can't deny what the text says but what it means is they would say that God looked ahead in the timeline of history to see who would choose him and then he was like okay now we're cool yeah I'm gonna choose you because you chose me right there's a few issues with this I'll point out a couple Issue number one, this would go against God's character of being impartial. If God foreknows and chooses people for salvation based on any characteristic of the individual, God would be showing partiality. And we are told in Scripture again and again that God, even Paul told us, told us in Romans already, when going against the Greek and the Jew, that God shows no partiality. We're going to see in Romans 9, but we'll pull it up now so that we can see this point when the example of Jacob and Esau is given. Romans 9, verses 10 and 11, it says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works but because of him who calls. It had nothing to do with whether Isaac or Esau were going to do something good or evil. I'm sorry, Jacob or Esau. God had already predetermined who he would love and who he would hate. So God does not look ahead to see if we're going to have any good quality. Issue number two. If we are to believe 
that God looked ahead to see who would choose him, inevitably, that would imply that God is learning something new. It's like if my kids are watching a YouTube video and they really want to get to the end so that they're not worried whether things are going to work out or not, right? And then they rewind it back. Okay, well, I know it's going to turn out good, so now I can watch it with more ease. Does God need to peek in the video of reality in order to find out? This goes against God's absolute knowledge, his omniscience. God has exhaustive knowledge of everything that there is to know. There's no such thing as peeking ahead for God. For he has ordained what will happen. He does not accommodate his plans according to the actions of mere creatures. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says the following. This is God speaking. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things yet not done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is not worried that his plan might not turn out. Never. He has exhaustive knowledge, and he has ordained what will happen. Issue number three with the idea that God will look ahead to see who would pick him. This violates God's description of the nature of men because God has made it abundantly clear that no one, absolutely nobody, seeks for him on their own. Therefore, there is no such thing of someone choosing God and therefore God will choose them. We will summarize the nature of God as follows. I didn't quote a scripture, but I put the main idea of his scripture. First, we've learned in the book of Romans that no one seeks for God in Romans 3. Secondly, that unregenerate people cannot understand spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2.14. And then that the natural person is a slave of sin, Romans 6.20. And then that the hearts of people are desperately wicked and deceitful. Jeremiah 17.9. Now, it's not true that the attitude of most people in the history of the world, and even us, if not now at some point in the past, was, you know, I'm, I'm actually okay. I do some good things. I don't need all that religiosity. If, if I were to come before God, I think he would accept me. That, such attitude, my friends, or a variation thereof, is only a reflection of the deceitfulness and the wickedness of the human heart. We are not okay. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were not going to seek for God. Unless God opens up our mind, our heart, our understanding, we will reject Him. So then, if no one can come to God on their own merit, then who can be saved? The people listening to Jesus speak when Jesus told them that if they were to enter the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, which externally was a very high standard. They threw their hands up and said, then who can be saved? It's impossible. And my friends, in a very true sense, if we are going to experience true salvation, 
And I'll say this, even if we are saved, if we're to appreciate the gift of salvation, we too should realize, I can't do it. Then how am I going to be saved? Or how is it that I'm saved? It's a great question. The quick answer is, God has come to ordain it and make it happen. Otherwise, it's not possible. John 6, says, No one, not me, not you, not our grandmothers, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So God, in his mercy, knowing that out of our own will and out of our own nature, humanly speaking, no one would come to him. God, in his love for his people, has predestined for people to come to him. Those that the, fathers, that the Father draws to him. Brings us to our second point. God predestined his people for salvation. Let us read the text again. For those whom he foreknew, cover that, right? Foreknew. He also predestined. So predestined is related to the term that we examine is to determine something ahead of time. Or before its occurrence. Something's going to happen, but it's already preordained. The only reason people come to salvation is because God decreed it to be so. Now, let us talk about a couple of objections to that, right? The most common one is, wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not fair. My answer, objection granted. But not in the way that most people would think. It is not fair that God has called the shots on who will be saved. I would say what would be fair is that nobody gets saved and everybody's damned to hell. That would be fair. It would be perfectly just for the wages of sin is death. And since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all are deserving of condemnation. All deserve judgment. My friends, this is crucial because if we are able to grasp this, we will be able to see the holiness of God in the sinfulness of man. We must see that distinction in the creator versus the creature. If we don't see that, we diminish the holiness of God. And we downplay the sinfulness of man. It is not fair. But God has shown mercy. In that all deserve judgment. God decreed to rescue some from eternal death. Objection number two will, will go something like this or a variation thereof. Well, if God predestines, what about a person's free will? To which I say, what about it? Now, this is the key here. Track with me. An unregenerate person is free to choose whatever he or she wants. Yes, you heard that right. An unregenerate heart will choose whatever they please. And spiritually speaking, this person will choose only according to their sinful nature. 
only. How about it? Therefore, choosing God is not part of the domain of what an unregenerate person can choose. Do they have free will? Absolutely. An unregenerate person is a slave of sin. They will choose accordingly. And that could look very differently, maybe for an unregenerate person who is evidently made very poor choices in life and are perhaps leaving it up in their vices and their lusts and it's visibly perceivable. Or it could be more sophisticated. It could be a person who's, by the standards of our culture, successful, wealthy, well-off. Nevertheless, they do everything for their glory and to please their lusts and their pleasures to the glory of themselves. Both have free will. And the only thing they will consistently choose is to rebel against God. Their choosing will never include coming to God or loving God in a true sense. This is another teaching that we derive from scripture, which is the inability of man to come to God. The natural man cannot choose God, cannot come to God. So outside of Christ, does somebody have free will? Yeah, but let's define terms. Free will according to their nature. According to their nature. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 read as follows. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. If somebody stops there, ha ha, see? Somebody received him, somebody believed in his name, and therefore they became children of God. Well, let's keep reading. Who were born, talking about being born again, run, uh, the theme of John developing in chapter 1 through uh, chapter 3, being born again. Those who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. There it is. Not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but of God. So man, free will, objection granted, yes, absolutely. But the person will only exercise his or her free will consistent with their nature. Their sinful nature will never choose God. So because man cannot choose God, Scripture tells us, and we could even imply that therefore, God chooses his people to be saved. This is God's mercy and grace. No one deserves to be rescued, yet God in his mercy saves some people. So then let us look at God's purpose in predestination and foreknowledge. God's purpose. Now reading the entire verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, so now we're told the purpose. Why he foreknew, why he saved us. To be conformed to the image of Christ. So we have multiple benefits there. Not only to save us and spare us from judgment, 
but to become more and more into the mold, the perfect image of Christ day by day. Now that is accomplished in two major ways. First, in the way that it starts now. If we are Christians, walking through our sanctification, we are to become more and more like Christ. Picking up our cross, following Jesus daily, denying ourselves, sacrificing. 1 Peter 1.16 reads as follows. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So who is the one who exemplified perfect obedience? Jesus. We are to become more and more like Jesus. Or like the apostle says, be imitators of me as I am imitator of Christ. To become more and more like Jesus in the here and now. It starts now. And we are also told that we are to be like Christ in our suffering, which is mom, mom is only for the time being, mom, mom, momentarily, sorry. That affliction is only for the time being and is preparing us for the weight of eternal glory to come. Second Corinthians 4, 17. For this light Momentary, uh, like, why am I struggling with that word? For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Okay? In our suffering, we are being prepared for what's to come. And then, as we talk about what's to come, becoming more and more like Christ is not only here in the now, but it's looking forward to a great future state. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. See? We are looking toward a greater glory to come. And that speaks specifically of our bodies being transformed in the physical into a body that will be like the body of the Lord Jesus in his resurrection, a glorified body. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 49, which also alludes to that. Just as we have borne the image of the men of dust, Adam, the men who fell and sinned, and returns to dust. We shall also bear the image of the men of heaven. The glorified body. The second Adam. The perfect Adam. That is Christ. So then we are to become more and more into the image of Christ. In the here and now. Remembering the hope that is to come. Which is not only a true spiritual state but it reminds us of the physical aspect of the hope of the resurrection that Christians have. Not only spiritual, but it's also physical. 
And then the last portion of our text in Romans 8, 29, it says, I'll read it again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus is the perfect son. He is the firstborn. Now let's say a note about that. When the cults see that he's the firstborn, they very quickly try to point out, aha, you see that? It's his firstborn. Jesus is not God. He's the creature. He was born. Simply speaking, wrong. When we see that word in scripture of Jesus being described as the firstborn, it means the one who holds a unique place of preeminence. Jesus is uniquely given rulership over all things. And secondly, Jesus was the firstborn to be resurrected in bodily form in a glorified body. Now, there were some resuscitations in Scripture, but those folks didn't live forever. Those were signs of what was to come ahead, of the glorious eternal resurrection of whom Jesus is the first one. He's the firstborn into that glorified state in a physical body that died and rose again. So firstborn, remember, is the place of preeminence, of absolute rulership. And it is the place of Jesus being the first one who rose from the dead into eternal glory in a glorified body, in a physical body. And in such manner, we are told, those that belong to Jesus, those who were predestined, those who God foreknew, will one day also be. Colossians 1.18 reads as follows. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Again, preeminence. The glorious place that is given only to Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God Almighty Himself, the second person of the Trinity. Genesis of Jesus. God is holy. We are sinful. The wages of sin is death. We deserve condemnation. God, in His mercy and His grace, provided a way out by giving His only begotten Son so that He would live a perfect life, be murdered on the cross, be put to death, and resurrect from the grave so that whoever trusts in the perfect work of Christ and repents from sin will inherit eternal life. That's a thumbnail print of the, of the gospel. Which brings us to the third point. In closing, what is your responsibility? What is my responsibility? Repent and believe. That's it. Repent and believe. Believe in the gospel. Trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And repent living a life of obedience and hence becoming more and more into his image as you walk the life of a believer. Now that is impossible to do. And it is only by God's grace that he strengthens and gives his saints the spirit to persevere through this life so that we can experience the growth in Christ that mostly comes through suffering. We covered that already. And then to enjoy the eternal life that lays ahead of the Christian. 
not only in spirit, but also in the truth of the gospel, it involves a physical aspect. Yes, we will be resurrected in the glorified body that the Lord has prepared for us. In that, my brothers and sisters, let us rejoice. It is not a responsibility to find out who's chosen. Who's, that is beyond our knowledge. We don't know. Okay? But we do know what the text tells us. That unless God foreknows and ordains our salvation, we're lost. We do know that. That is plain. My encouragement to you is this. Rejoice in the fact that salvation is of God. If it were any other way, you wouldn't be saved. Let us rejoice that God has decreed for him to be the author of salvation. Because in that, we can rest. Oh, we can rest in that. Yes. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy in predestining your saints. Thank you, Lord, for extending that grace, that favor to us that is undeserved. Through the salvation you provided in the perfect work of our Lord Jesus. Let us be humbled and let us rejoice in your goodness. Knowing that unless you reach out to us and save the lost, we would have no hope. Lord, a dead person cannot respond to the call to be awakened. Unless you call us like you called Lazarus. Let us remember in what day or even what season of our life you called us to be saved and let us be in complete awe and worship of you for doing so. And perhaps to those that don't know you, may you show mercy to them, my Lord, and call them into life. That your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and that they would turn in repentance and be born again. We pray all these things. In your holy name, amen.